This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 42 of World to Win. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to our channel and also click the notification button to be notified when we go live or when we upload a new video. And I also want to remind everyone that our episodes are also available uh, in podcast form on all popular platforms. Just search for World to Win wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts uh, or check out the links in the description box as well. This week, unfortunately, we don't have Toya with us, um, so you'll have to make do with me. Um, But we'll try to make it as cool of an episode, even in Toya's absence still. And we're going to do something a little bit different this time. We're going to talk about football. Now, because Toya isn't here, don't have to caveat this and say soccer. um, But just uh, everyone should know that we're talking about the same thing now. Um, And... We're obviously not, by far, not the only people who are talking about football right now. You know, um, the announcement of the European Super League uh, breakaway provoked a massive backlash and outpouring of anger around the world. And, you know, it was about sports. It was definitely about sports on the one hand. And, you know, the destruction of national football leagues. But it was also kind of a symbolism of anger generally. Anger against the power of billionaires, which went deep into the working class and kind of kind of mobilized the working class as well. And, of course, as socialists, we understand that class struggle, which is working class struggle uh, against the super rich, can be expressed uh, through culture and it can be pre- exp- expressed through sports and every other cultural aspect as well. So we have a really uh, brilliant guest here today with us and I'm really excited to talk about this because I know absolutely nothing about football and I've, he- I've been hearing about it so much so I'm really uh, keen to hear from our experts today. So we've got, um, first of all, we've got Suzanne who is a football journalist at the UK Guardian and she's also an expert on women's football and has written a lot about football-related stories, but especially linking it to sexism and racism, which I think is really interesting and really fascinating. So, hi, Suzanne. How are you doing? Uh, what have you been up to lately? Hey, I'm good, thanks. Uh, swimming in Women's Champions League stuff at the moment, like it's uh, the games on Sunday. Um, I've got quarantine exemption to get into Sweden for it. So basically, yeah, just swimming in in preview stuff for that which has been very very fun because it's like a nice positive story for a change yeah sounds like a good break from everything that's been going on um especially if you get to go physically there that that hasn't happened in a while has it um and then we also have john here who's an isa member based in the bus country uh, and is also a long and suffering activist fan of newcastle united and also an Sorry if I'm pronouncing it wrong. Uh, socio of Alaves in the Spanish La Liga. Hi, John. How are you doing? What, what have you been up to? Hi, Anna. Well, politically, we've just had uh, May Day a couple of uh, uh, weeks ago where we uh, intervened there with a new copy of La Brecha, uh, which is our Spanish uh, uh, paper. Uh, a lot of workers on strike, indefinite strike, especially women workers in the in the retail industry. And also, we've been analysing the, uh, the results, uh, election results uh, in Madrid where the far right one. And of course, uh, footballistically speaking, we're celebrating that Alaves have, uh, have avoided relegation and also Newcastle as well. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Yeah. 
Brilliant. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what both of you have to say about my first question, because this is going to be a, a very, very newbie kind of question for you. So for people like me who have no idea what's been going on, can you quickly explain what happened with the ESL and also why it's such a big deal in the first place? Yeah, should I take that? Um, I suppose to start off with, if you're a complete newbie, um, it would make sense to explain what the Champions League is, which is it's um, the biggest competition in Europe, uh, the best teams in Europe competing um, in a uh, what starts as a group stage and then moves into a knockout stage uh, to win the European Cup. Now, teams qualify for it on the basis of how well um, uh, they uh, teams perform in it each year. So, um, England's coefficient to get into the competition is based on the performance of English teams in the competition for the previous five years. And that's how they work it out, how many places uh, in it that in- English teams get. And then it will be the top three or so teams of England, depend- four or four, uh, depending on um, the ranking. Um, so basically, you you do well domestically, you earn a place in Europe. Um, and so that is, that's the sort of the crux of the, of the Champions League. Uh, what 12 rogue... Uh, clubs were proposing to do, which has, uh, you know, been nicknamed the Dirty Dozen, um, was to launch a new uh, European competition that would run uh, independently of UEFA. The Champions League is run by UEFA, is governed by UEFA, um, and that it would be sort of self-governed. So um, it would be a closed shop. There'd be no relegation or promotion into the competition. These 12 teams who have sort of self-elected themselves as the best in, in Europe would decide who was in it and who was out of it. Um, and it it'd basically just sort of destroy any competition element to the league because you have to um, appease uh, these the, the, the owners of these 12 teams to, to make it into it. So a real... Um, sort of monopolising of European football, I suppose. Yeah, and God, I think the, for me the the uh, most striking thing about this uh, phenomenon is, is how quickly everything developed. Uh, it was announced in the Spanish press, in fact, I was having a drink on the terrace just after the uh, after the World to Win, and uh, I read it in the Spanish press, and after I, had, uh, after I finished my drink and I got home, there was already um, uh, protests by Chelsea and Man United fans, and it's the the most striking thing, as I, as I said about, it, is how quickly it, it developed, but also the unity between fo- uh, f- football fans. Uh, Chelsea fans uh, uh, surrounded the ground. They stopped the uh, coach going in. Man United fans uh, had a protest, uh, and they stopped actually st- uh, postponed the, the match against uh, Liverpool. And they took direct action. And basically, they said to the uh, to the owners, "You either withdraw from this uh, Super League, or you're going to suffer the uh, the consequences." So it's actually, you know, it's been a, a massive uh, blow against uh, big big business and uh, what you know, the big business running. Of, uh, of football, but think about it, the speed and the unity of uh, football fans across the clubs, which has been above the the, uh, the rivalries that, that, that exist. Thanks, John. I'm really interested to hear more about that. Can you tell me a little bit more about how kind of the backlash, how did it develop? Um, well, I think it developed through, uh, first of all, the, what it represented, what it meant. Uh, um, perhaps I could give like a bit of a from a Spanish uh, La Liga uh, context because uh, basically what we have here in, in La Liga is a monopoly of uh, Barcelona 
and uh, and Real Madrid. And you know, people are asking why is Florentino Perez, who's the who's the president of the uh, of uh, Real Madrid, why was he so keen to do this? Why did he why did he do it? Well, the basic uh, basic reason is because of the uh, massive debt of Real Madrid and Barcelona. I think uh, Barcelona have a debt of over a billion euros. Think about that, a billion uh, euros, and. Uh, Real Madrid are not far behind. So basically, they're looking for other uh, income streams. They've, they've sucked all the money out of Spanish football and they thought, OK, we'll get some money from the uh, from JP Morgan, I think, who offered them £3.5 But what they didn't understand, or Florentino Perez didn't understand, was the passion for fairness and for a you know, proper, uh, proper uh, competition in Britain and also in other countries, Germany uh, as well. And so the, the reaction was because of the, you know, the world we're living in now, social, social media, fans were able to contact each other very, very quickly. And basically, it was a bridge too far. You know, football fans have been protesting for a long time, especially Man United fans against the Glazers, American uh, family, who millionaire family, billionaire family who own, who own the club. They've uh, protested for a long, long time. But this was a bridge too far. We said, if we go over this uh, bridge, it'll be the end of football, uh, as we know it, as a competition. So it's really it's an example, not just to uh, you know to football, but to all activists and people on the left that if you uh, unite and uh, you know have, have a have a goal, <laughs> a goal, you can actually uh, you can actually win. I think it's a massive blow against uh, multinational capitalism and big business in in uh, in sport, and it's showed that football fans basically want to kick out. Uh, big business from uh, from football yeah the motivations of the clubs is a really interesting one um john you mentioned the motivation of barker and uh, uh real being uh the fact that they're in massive debt and i think that was a similar story for juventus ac milan um for you know arsenal liverpool manchester united um and i think one of the 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 things that made the whole project fracture away was the um the decision of Man City and, and Chelsea to withdraw and I think their motivations were very, very different in that, you know, City backed by um, Abu Dhabi and um, Chelsea backed by Roman Abramovich is Russian billions um, meant that they, they didn't need the money. You know, this was, this was not about money for them. For them, um, the, they use football, they use those two clubs uh, to sort of whitewash their reputations. Um, they're, they're, they're a political tool for them. Um, in in sort of world politics, um, they're a way of of cleaning their reputation, uh, both of the country and of them as individuals, and so that wasn't their motivation. So when the backlash started, um, you know that started to impact their reputations, and that was that was the problem for them. For them, it was never about money. They've got money. They've got money coming out of their ears, um, and that's where it started to fracture, um, and where the the impact of, of of fans was able to sort of kind of begin to split um to split to split the clubs based on based on those motivations um so yeah it's um very interesting as well that you know in t- in the case of arsenal liverpool man united they've all got american owners as john said um and uh you know that they are used to american style uh, sport the nfl acts in a very similar way it's a closed shop it's entertainment more than sport you know it's hard for um, you know, teams don't get relegated or promoted from um, from uh, the NFL leagues. Um, it's heavily commercialised. Um, not all of the clubs are protected. You know, they can't they can't drop down anywhere. They can't fall out of favour. 
um and their 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 draft system helps maintain you know that they all slowly overpeg each other and and share the share the spoils every year so that is what they wanted essentially they wanted to protect their investments in european football you know you look at arsenal uh, in particular at the moment doing absolutely terribly um you know the stan cronke and his uh, ownership group kse um you know they want to protect arsenal as an elite team in europe because they want to protect their investment and so this was this was about that for them this was about making sure that regardless of how good they are on the pitch they are immune from relegation from um elimination from europe and get a big slice of that 3 billion uh pot that uh, that was being put up by morgan uh was it Morgan Stanley? Can't remember which bank. One of the banks. JP Morgan. <laughs> yeah, I think I think this is really really interesting, and I think especially in the context of kind of like the history of sport, and especially in the last couple of years, when this has definitely not been the first time that sports and even football uh, have been kind of like the kind of focal point of working class outrage and struggle as well um, and kind of mixing up with politics even though we often are encouraged to believe that sports are completely detached from the political realm so Suzanne can you tell us a little bit about because we talked about um, kind of your work within the kind of anti-sexism anti-racism in sports and I was just wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what's been happening recently generally in sports uh, yeah, like a surprising amount, to be honest. Um, you know, if you look in the last week with the, the the change of the men's Champions League final from, uh, well, to, to now be played in Portugal where fans are going to be allowed and quarantine exemptions are going to be lifted between England and Portugal. Um, I mean, that's been a huge, huge issue in that uh, fans were just sort of put second fiddle uh, to, to profit in order to play that that game in a country that you know couldn't physically allow fans to attend um and you know for me a big issue is the fact that that competition got moved to allow fans to attend but the um the women's champions league final is still being played in Gothenburg where Swedish cases of covid are extremely high where you still have to quarantine for 10 days on entry and then 10 days on entry to the UK um so no Chelsea fans no Spanish fans can go to that that game and that's okay but the men's one we can move we can make that work we can make we can shift things around to make that happen and make sure that the um 6000 fans per team or whatever it's going to be can can get in so there's there's big issues around that um for me in in immediate recent days um slightly longer um i wrote an article about um uh, the basically harassment and sexual abuse of under 19 players in argentina um in the on on the women's side which uh, is a case that is rumbling on and is being investigated by fifa um but as i understand it the coach who is accused of sexual harassment and uh, and abusive behavior um and bullying is not suspended and is still allowed to coach uh young girls in argentina including traveling with them and that's uh, a massive problem in that the argentinian fa are saying well fifa are dealing with it so we can't we can't get involved in this and discipline them um and there's a real lack of safeguarding across the organization um, and that's partly because they, a they don't really care, but also FIFA is just such a corrupt organisation that it's all about protecting the votes of um, 
of uh, of the president and and his mates and so they don't like to upset their local federations by you know banning uh, their coaches for any significant period of time or suspending them um and so yeah so basically uh you know you then get coaches who are abusing young female players allowed to continue to coach while they're being under investigation and you, you you just couldn't imagine that happening in a school for example if a teacher was accused of abuse of some kind of them being allowed to continue to teach while the investigation was ongoing it just wouldn't happen um they'd be suspended on full pay while it was being investigated um so uh, i mean football is a is a like a, a, i'd say um a, a reflection of of society and capitalism at its possibly most greedy brutal point because it can get away with it because there's not the sort of checks and balances that we have more generally in society with governments and stuff <laughs> uh, as, as terrible as they they can be um to to regulate things you know football is a completely like unregulated uh sport it self-governs it's been allowed to build up this sort of despotic regime uh in in uh, in switzerland through fifa and in europe through uefa that um basically run roughshod over absolutely everything that that attempts to dilute their power or or piece of the pie and when i say piece of the pie i mean the whole pie and then all of the sides um so i mean there's always stuff going on in in football um, from a political point of view, um, both from, you know, things like abuse of players, but um, in terms of, you know, racism on the pitch, you know, the likes of Raheem Sterling and um, oh, uh, Reese James suffering uh, abuse in, in recent months. Um, there was a social media boycott by all of the major governing bodies in England and... Um, and like anti-racism organizations and football clubs and leagues um over sort of social media abuse um of players online not being dealt with by big social media companies and that you know is fairly ineffective in many ways um you know we can't rely on or expect uh social media companies to stamp out racism and sexism and abuse um but it i did send quite a powerful message and i think if that is a part of a broader campaign against those things one that actually goes in and discusses the genuine um causes of racism and uh and and sexism and things in society then it could be you know quite an interesting development if we can you know open up and have those conversations the thing is is the people running that campaign and leading it aren't people that want to have those conversations or want to look more broadly about the connection to sport and society and and the influence of it and why you can't eradicate racism and sexism from football because you all with without eradicating it from society more generally as long as it's in one it's always going to exist in the other so yeah loads going on um but um yeah the esl i think was significant in that it united everyone across racial boundaries, class boundaries, club loyalties, you know, club fans are notoriously um, loyal and, uh, and, and are willing to overlook some of the worst excesses of their own clubs um, in like so many ways. But this just united everyone on a, a very, very basic level that, you know, you can't, take competition and fairness out of sport and that i think that was the key to this is that it united everyone in a way that has never been done before
I, I've picked up uh, in the last few weeks uh, some people on the left, unfortunately, um, questioning whether this is a political issue, whether football is a political issue. And even some people on the left, unfortunately, uh, saying, uh, criticizing football fans for taking this action and saying, oh, they should be protesting about the health service and, and the things. And I think that we have to be clear as socialists that any um, activity, any uh, campaign against uh, capitalism and big business, we support it. We, we are there. We, we are with them. And we want to discuss whether football fans are doing that. But football is a political uh, issue. I think it was Trotsky said in the 1920s when talking about Britain and where's Britain gone, he said the passion that the British people have for football, where, which is uh, diverted along uh, artificial lines, will one day be uh, uh, will one day be directed towards uh, towards a uh, revolution. Is that not what's happening now? Is it not ha- happening that people are taking up economic issues in uh, anger? And also, I think uh, this hasn't been reported very much in the, I think in uh, the British press. But in Spain, there were the, uh, the, there was a lot of anger about the about the uh, the, the, the this this, this uh, so called uh, Super League. There, other clubs wore t shirts against Real Madrid and said football is for the fans. But also, there's absolute, and this is the context of the pandemic where, where millions of people have suffered and lost their jobs or are on strike fighting for their to save their jobs. Someone like Messi is paid, this is incredible, you won't believe his figure, but he gets $138 million in his new uh, uh, contract. It's absolutely uh, outrageous. And people here are really angry uh, about it when nurses and uh, you know health workers are, are hardly paid uh, anything less than even in, in, uh, in Britain. So there's a lot of anger. But the question, is football political? Of course it is. It's a, it's a, it's a political question. Look at this week. Look at uh, what's happened at Celtic, at Celtic Park. The fans have been given permission to go into the um, to the ground for to to commemorate something. What was the first thing they did? The, the, thousands of them took in uh, Palestinian flags and they made a protest in uh, to support the Palestinian people who have been uh, oppressed, oppressed at the moment. So there's a lot more examples, but football is a political issue, and we we, we welcome football fans getting political like they did in the past over Hillsborough. Heisel and uh, against ID cards when we were, you know, younger, when I was younger, I was in the Young Socialist in Britain, that we had a big victory against Margaret Thatcher. We used to go to the uh, football grounds, we talked to football fans, and we, we recruited them to the Young Socialist and, and to Millet, and we, and we beat Margaret Thatcher, who wanted, who hated Liverpool. She hated Liverpool for what they represented because it was a militant uh, city and she tried to punish them. But the football fans united across the different clubs and we uh, and, and we defeated her. Of course, you know, I mentioned Hill, Hillsborough as well. That was an incredibly uh, sad uh, event. 97 fans uh, died. But, but the working class people of Liverpool, they were blamed by Thatcher. They were blamed by the uh, Tory press. But the rose up and they campaigned for years, for over two decades. And finally, the truth uh, the truth came out. So, so, so comrades who think, oh, it's not a political issue. Well, it is a political issue. And we, uh, we, you know, we have to stand alongside football fans. And actually, uh, we welcome the victory that they've had against this uh, Super League. But we, as socialists, want to go further on the question of... Uh, the question of ownership, and I think that's an important thing to talk about now, is who owns the clubs and what, what is our policy uh, for, for, for that? Thanks. I think this is really interesting. And I also think that like, to add to everything that you're saying, it's always important that we meet the working class where they're at. And, the, and football is a working class sport. And sports generally are something that unites the working class on a very kind of important level. So 
if the working class is getting outraged at something like this, they're not getting outraged just out of nothing. They're getting outraged at billionaires and it's not detached from... It's not just a football thing. It's not detached from the realities that every day, that, that, that you experience every day as a working class person compared to the rich. Um, but I wanted to ask, because we, we've talked a lot about kind of like the political nature of uh, kind of football and sports generally. And obviously, Suzanne, you talked a little bit about women's football. And of course, you, you wrote some groundbreaking stuff about this. Uh, and I think you made one point that I think really needs to be stressed about how kind of football is not detached from overall society. And as long as we have racism, as long as we have sexism in society, it's going to exist in football as well. Um, and obviously on World to Win, we talk about this quite, quite a lot about fighting for sexism, fighting racism as well. And I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about kind of the political nature of women's football, because there's been kind of a revival of that in the past couple of years. We've seen kind of figures that would have never, I think, been known to everyone become uh, like, you know, covers, uh, come on the covers of magazines uh, from women's football. So do you think this revival is connected to the way that society is generally progressing questions of sexism? And also, do you think that women's football is actually going to kind of change um, the sexist notions in sports generally? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think... One of the interesting things about women's uh, football and women's sport generally, I suppose, as well, is that um, it, it because of the sort of, you know, kind of constructs of society that say that women should not, um, you know, historically should, should not play sport or should, you know, kind of stay at home in the kitchen or whatever it may be, um, or, or go to work or, you know, literally yeah be involved in any kind of physical um activity at all um what's interesting is that just the very act of playing football in a lot of cases for women without them necessarily being conscious of it is quite a political act because you're you're immediately pushing back against those stereotypes against those barriers put in front of you against a, a society that that doesn't want to let you play the man's game the people's game um of football um and so in in that sense its very essence is political um because at every stage women have had to fight to be able to play it so you know you go back to say the you know kind of even just the last 10 years and um you know women have struggled to get pitch of pitches available for them to play on they've been um you know you've had senior women's national teams um be have boys academy youth teams prioritized over them for training facilities they've had to train like late into the night to be able to get time on pitches they're obviously not professional in most cases so they don't um you know they don't you can't earn a living out of it um and the facilities generally are, are poor so just the very act of playing the act of uh, being involved in the sport is a is a rebellion against uh you know kind of gender expectations societal norms i suppose and then and then you've got the the fact that obviously you know in, particularly in recent years you've had this huge uh explosion of um of i suppose 
feminist movements more generally in society and football's not like you say not removed from from the existence of those uh, those things and it is influenced by them and i think you know the rise of the likes of um, Megan Rapino and the US Women's National Team who have you know fought a long ongoing legal battle for equal pay to the men's team that they actually outperform um, and outsell and actually generate more income than for God knows how many years I think at least five six years um, is an indication more of of what is going on in society more generally than than what is going on just in women's football um, you know we're seeing all, all the different movements against um uh, you know the Sarah Everard case um you know go further back the slut walk movements and things like that um all uh like or me too generally exploding uh more broadly in society and you know all about women speaking up and uh and, and demanding better conditions and and more um is reflected in football you know we've had a me too movement in football first with the afghanistan women's national team speaking out over their abuse um then colombia the women's under 17 team speaking out against abuse the under 17s team in canada speaking out against abuse the gymnastics um the horrific abuse of larry nasser the gymnastics um uh doctor in the u.s um, all of these have been in the context of those broader um, movements of women and struggles against um, like this patriarchal society that looks to keep us down. And um, the the you know the the great thing about women's football is that because it it, it you know it exists in a world where profit rules so so brutally. Um, that it's sort of constantly um, in struggle with uh, with itself, with just just for the very right to exist. Um, literally this week, we've had two or three managers resign from top clubs in uh, the Women's Super League in England, and they've resigned because the facilities are bad, because they're not getting the resources they need. And we, you know, we're talking Man United, Casey Stoney leaving Man United uh, three years after they launched a team with a lot of fanfare. Um, is leaving because the training facilities are poor. I've heard that they were literally, uh, their gym is currently in a marquee, that they've been shunted from um, pillar to post, that they don't actually know where they're training next season, that the academy have um, given them the runaround and don't want them using their facilities. Um, And, you know, this is one of the biggest clubs in the world saying that, you know, we don't care about uh, 50% of our fan base and 50% of the population of the world. Um, And... Yeah, I suppose it 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 means that there, there there is always going to be struggle within the women's game, and that for me makes it an exciting place to work, an exciting thing to write about from a political point of view, because it's like it just exposes the excesses of capitalism at every single turn. Um, you know, why can't Manchester United, this this club that is one of if not the most well most supported clubs in the world uh the biggest global fan base with um you know billions of pounds um like in uh like in um worth 
um, and you know huge huge wealth of uh, of the Glacier family behind them, um, and they can't spare more than two million pounds a season for their women's team. I mean, like literally that it, it's that stark. You know, it's it it's less than um, you know what some of their players will be getting. Uh, per season, you know, get sell sell one player, and you can cover the entire wages of a women's team for five years. So that is literally how stark we're looking, and that's a re- you know, it's a really violently obvious um, failure of capitalism that it can't even that you, you know these these rich 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 clubs can't even be bothered to fund the women's teams just for the optics of <laughs> of gender equality in their clubs like that they they are that profit driven they are that motivated by greed that they will not dare spend spare uh, a few extra quid to build a um a vibrant match winning side uh, that is going to you know well reflect on their image as well they they just don't care um and that's i think that speaks to John's point in that you know does sport matter? Is it political? Like, like, look at it. It is. It is. It that just that very example that you could pay an entire team's wages with the wages of one Premier League star for multiple years. Um, you know that it 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 massively exposes the vast excesses of capitalism, like really, really quickly. And I think it's really naive and silly of people um, of other socialists to cut themselves off from movements within sport because they're they're perfect opportunities to tie uh, to tie things to the broader issues um and that that for me is the biggest thing is that there's just huge huge opportunity within the game to to point to the failings of capitalism and the free market more generally you know like the free market doesn't free market capitalism doesn't stop it doesn't reach a point where it's suddenly satisfied and that's what the ESL demonstrated that's what these clubs are demonstrating in their treatment of women's football um you know the myth is that free market capitalism encourages competition but it, it in reality it stamps it out um you know all of um the clubs in the involved in the ESL for example have feeder clubs city uh Manchester City group owns nine teams in different leagues like they're not about competition they're about like cementing their status as as um a global club that is going to you know kind of never ever be removed from power and the same process is going on in the tech industry in the food industry in the pharmaceutical industry they're not separate um exactly the same things are happening um yeah, so what is great is that football fans are drawing the conclusions themselves, um, and that is what we can exploit. They're drawing the conclusions that um, that <laughs> that competition uh, is needed, and that the uh, free market capitalism doesn't 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 solve it. Um, you know, you've got Gary Neville on TV, <laughs> on on national TV on Sky Sports, l- lamenting the failures of capitalism, um, and and owning the fact that he has benefited so much from the from the sport and its growth but it just doesn't happen and and that's a huge opportunity for us to expose and exploit and take advantage of yeah i think this is a really really important point that i think connects to everything that we've been talking about it's kind of like we're justifying why we're even talking about it but it's so clear from the way that you're describing it why sports and why particularly football is so important when we talk about working class struggle and i think also like 
like the stark differences that you're talking about are things that exist in every single industry under capitalism and working class people see it they see that it's not just football um so i was i was kind of wondering john because we we we're talking about the ESL in particular here and we also mentioned a few other struggles but discontent about the way that football is running like the points that Suzanne was making before about like how corrupt FIFA is for example they're all points that have been talked about for quite a while and I think that this discontent has been brewing among working class football fans for a very very long time including uh, at your own club John actually um so I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how that's developed and why the ESL was the, 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 the straw that broke the camel's back. Okay, well, I think in the, uh, in, in the UK, uh, football was, you know, it's called the people's game and, and, and other countries uh, as well. You know, mainly working class fans and m- most of the players are, you know, uh, 99% are working class as well. And it's, you know, it's a cultural uh, question that people, you know, worked in the factories, worked in their offices and they need something to do the, the weekend. And, you know, your your cultural sort of identity is expressed by the football. But over the years, you know, since the, since the 80s through the 90s with the establishment of the Premier League, uh, basically, football's got more distant from the uh, fr- from the from the fans, and there has been, uh, as I mentioned before, there, ha- there has been movements against uh, against the you know ultra monopoly capitalism control in football. For example, in my club, you know, uh, since since the nineteen nineties, we've been using the slogan uh, "sack the board." Well, now we would say "sack the board," sack uh, 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 Ashley, get Ashley out of the club. You know, why should someone be chairman of a club? Who actually has all his workforce or most of his workforce on zero-hour contracts, and it sticks in the in the you know in the craw of, uh, of uh, working-class people that someone like that is chairman of our our club. But we've had a lot of campaigns trying to get him out. Fans looking for different forms of uh, you know of uh, of ownership. You know, mentioned before uh, campaigns in the 1980s against uh, ID cards. But this this question of ownership. Um, I think the reason why it's become so um, so acute at the moment is because fans have really, really tried in, in the in the big clubs to to go on another path. For example, you know about um, about uh, uh, Manchester United. I think it was more than fifteen years ago when the Glazers, an American you know billionaire family, took over the club. And the way the press sort of uh, portrayed it was, oh, we need a big capitalist, this is what they said at Newcastle as well, to a big, you know, big business person to actually uh, give them money so we can compete at the top level. But it's a myth. What really happened? And Manchester United fans knew, they knew from the very beginning that uh, Glazer, the Glazer family were coming not to give money, but to take money out of the game. And that's what's actually uh, actually happened. They used like, a, I think it was a, a leveraged uh, buyout. Uh, the put the Man United into 125 million uh, of debt. I think in total it's cost uh, it's cost um, uh, cost the fans 1.1 billion to have the Glazers running the uh, running the club. So this idea that these uh, capitalists are doing it for the you know for the for the goodness that they want to help uh, football clubs, it's a complete it's a complete and uh, not myth. And I think this is the reason. You know, you ask the question, you know, why now? Well, I think it's the context of uh, what's been happening uh, in in the in the in the pandemic. People can see the differences between uh, rich and poor countries, the rich and the poor in in, in its country. And that's why I think you know, what's on the table now is the question of um, the question of uh, ownership. And I think we 
as, as socialists, we support anything which weakens the hold, the grip of, of capitalism, which is destroying football. We, 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 we support anything that, that does that. But as I said before, we, I think we've got to go further. You know, this idea is going around in Britain at the moment of uh, 50% plus one, which is the German model. Okay, that's a, that's a step forward. But I, I think, again, we'll have to go even further than that. And I just want to make a point about, um, about fan ownership. You know, we, out of the, the, the Glazers, uh, the campaign against the Glazers 15 years ago, there was a, the, some Man United fans decided enough was enough. And they actually uh, they decided to set up their own club, Football Club United of, uh, of Manchester. And that was a great initiative as well. That still exists, the People's Club in Manchester. That should be uh, recognised and, and, and saluted. But the, one of the, um, the myths about, uh, for example, Spanish football is that you've got fan control of Barcelona and Real Madrid. Let's just see what the real situation is there. As I mentioned, uh, they have multi-million uh, or billion uh, uh, euro uh, bu uh, budgets. To actually stand in the election as a pres to be president of uh, of, of uh, Barcelona or Real Madrid, you have to have a guarantee from the bank of fifteen percent. Now, no ordinary fan can afford that. So basically, the elections for Barcelona and Real Madrid are like the elections in Hong Kong or or in or in China. It's like electing a king, and once they're elected, they can do what the hell they want. They can make as much money as they want, and you can see that. Uh, you know, Pellet of um, Florentino Pellet is driving Real Madrid into the, uh, the ground. He's got all the money from Spanish football, and now he wants uh, uh, European money. But I think there's better examples. And it's not, you know, the uh, an, uh, important point. There's better examples that we we should uh, we should uh, celebrate and build on. For example, Athletic Bilbao, who, uh, who who have a policy of having only Basque players. They don't buy you know uh, players from anywhere in the world. They get the 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 they nurture local talent. But for me, the best example is a club in Gepuzkoa, which is a zone, uh, a province of uh, the Basque country, a club called Aiba. It's, it's a little uh, industrial town, only a few thousand uh, people. In this club, if people who are football fans and know, they're in La, La Liga, the Premier, La Primera in, uh, in, the, in the Spanish league. Now, this club, uh, they, they just, I think they've got about 7,000 uh, attendants, uh, very, very, very small ground, very proud uh, club, local players. They were promoted to the La Liga in 2014, and this follows on from Susie's point about the big, uh, the big clubs. The the big clubs wouldn't let them uh, be promoted because they didn't have uh, two million euros because they didn't have enough money, even though they won promotion. So this idea of uh, fairness and competition just didn't exist. Real Madrid, Barcelona said, "No, you're out. You can't." So what did they do? They launched a campaign uh, uh, around the world. And they got money from, from all over the world. I think they've got 11,000 shareholders. I think that's most of the town, but also shareholders from 65 different uh, uh, countries around the world. And I think that's a marvellous example, you know, of working class people uh, showing solidarity to, to a little club. And they're still, they're still in, in La Liga. So what is our alternative? Well, our alternative is, uh, you know, kick big business out of football. That's, that's, the, that's the first thing. Uh, answer the myths that they're helping football, not they're stealing from football. They're stealing from us. And the next, the next thing that we that we have to do is to reclaim the game for 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 working class people. And in the end, for me, that would me that would mean uh, the, the the football clubs being run by the fans, by the local community, and by the players and by the staff. You know, it's something for the future. But perhaps you know these ridiculous salaries people like Messi are getting. 
you know, in some future when we have a fair and a fan run football, they wouldn't be getting, they wouldn't need that amount, uh, wouldn't need that uh, amount, uh, 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 amount of money. So I think, you know, the basic policy that we've got is reclaim the game for the working class. That's, that's, that's what we're in favour of. This kind of leads me on to the next question, because we're talking a lot about ownership here and kind of what the position needs to be. And, you know, the structure of clubs and the structure of leagues as well. Um, And I think this is something that has been talked about for a very long time. And this kind of new decision kind of sparked this discussion and made it very clear to people that the way that kind of capitalism commodified football to this extent is just unacceptable and you mentioned Manchester United that there were uh, people who were kind of uh, demanding 50 plus one ownership uh, for the club and I was wondering I I, I actually want to hear from both of you for this one what do you think that a socialist vision of football should be because even in a socialist world we're still gonna have sports definitely this is one of the things that working class people have always been doing. So what is a socialist vision for football and what is a socialist vision for sports generally? Yeah, okay, I suppose um, the interesting thing for me on the 50 plus one thing to start off with on that is that um, it doesn't work. <laughs> um, in Germany, uh, you've got teams like Wolfsburg, Bayer Leverkusen, Hoffenheim who have all like found loopholes around it, right? So they are in theory uh, like have the 50 plus run rule but they're actually majority now owned by commercial investors because there's this loophole where if you um, have proved financial responsibility over a 20-year period um, then you can sort of get around you've, you've shown that you care enough about football and you can suddenly have more ownership than that 51 percent and then there's um, uh, RB Leipzig more seriously Red Bull Leipzig um, who have but who basically took over a club uh, operating in the fourth tier, pumped loads of money in, but and and they are technically um, ma- like majority owned by the fans, but they're owned by twenty fans who all work for Red Bull. Um, so there, there's so many ways that clubs can get around these rules, these rules, and big investors can get around these rules. And so the German model doesn't work. It's not enough, as John was saying. Um, you know, it, football clubs need full fan ownership to probably um, be safe, I suppose, from the, sort of the leeches of, 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 uh, of big business. Um, there are great examples, Dulwich Hamlet, Clapton FC, Lewis, um, who's, who pay their women's and men's team equally. Um, FC United, as John was mentioning, the split off from, from Manchester United when the Glazers took over. Um, Again, a fan-owned club that has community at its heart. And for me, under socialism, I mean, it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to predict exactly what what people would want. And you, you know, you hope that a socialist society would, would collectively make the decisions of, of what it would want sport to be. But I would like to see um, sport that is run purely in the interests of local communities and, like, you, like is out there um using the, the power and value of sport to influence... Um, like positively more generally in society and push the ideals that we want to see more generally in local communities um, and being um, central hubs uh, of, of local communities. But also, 
you know, that, that it's not an exclusive thing, that anyone can be involved, that anyone can take part, that there's provision for women to be able to play, there's provision for girls to be able to play, that there's provision in schools, that it's not, um, that there's not this elite, that wages are kept in check, that it's seen as a, as, as a vital part you know hopefully we have we all have more time and freedom and and you know job security to not have to be able to um uh, to to live in a in a world where such ridiculous wages are paid to players you know where people just play for fun and enjoyment rather than rather than greed and that competition is built on on that basis of just fun rather than um you know a desire to drive more profit into a business um so I suppose that for me, more broadly speaking, is what I would hope to see, um, you know, that it can be, you know, this, it's accessible as well, that you can, that anyone can go to it, that you don't have extortionate ticket prices, that it, you, you, you know, you don't have games stuck behind paywalls on Sky, on Sky Sports. You know, you had uh, Florentino Perez um, during the SL stuff talking about how young people were, uh, were not watching football anymore and that was the problem and so we needed we need 60 minute games instead of 90 minute games and more ad breaks and like more stoppages and it's like well no young people aren't watching football because they can't afford sky sports subscriptions and they can't afford ticket prices that's why that's why young people aren't interested in football because they can't go to it and they can't watch it on telly um like just accessibility of the game to the population both from a playing point of view a watching point of view um and and then also a control point of view like uh, people should be feel empowered to have a say in the running of their club like it is something that they belong to and as much as that under socialism they will have a say in the running of society they will have a say in the way their football club is run um so yeah i suppose for me that is that is what i want to see um like people feeling empowered and motivated to uh like run sport in the same way that they do in society more generally under socialism yeah i, I agree with uh susie and you know, I, I just make an observation i thought at the beginning of this uh movement against the um against the european uh, super league it was the fans who took the initiative it was the working class fans who united and uh and got got together and it was interesting that some of the top managers who you expected uh, would be a bit more vociferous against him were actually a little bit slow. I was a bit disappointed by the Liverpool manager and uh, Pep Guardiola as well. Very clever man, but uh, he didn't really come out clearly uh, against it. He talked about one of the points he made was about competition. But I tell you what, uh, under a socialist uh, system, a democratic uh, system, we'd have real competition. For example, I hope I don't offend too many Manchester City fans, but I don't see much merit in Man City winning the league again. When he, when this guy, uh, Pep Guardiola, can buy whoever play he wants, it doesn't matter, just, I want him, I want him, uh, he, get, he gets him. Uh, more merit is, is uh, the team I mentioned before, Ibar or Athletic, who uh, work on you know restricted budgets and they maintain the, the team at the top level. That's what would be sort of aiming for. But also, I think uh, uh, Green was a different vision, a different vision. Uh, you know, for example, uh, one of the things which I find uh, distasteful um, about uh, football is when sometimes when you see kids playing and the kids are sort of diving and acting like Messi and Cristiano uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and cheating. You know, like cheating's okay. You know, well, it's not okay. You know, and, and uh, it's it's not it's not good. We shouldn't we shouldn't do it. I think our vision would be sport for all. You know, access to everyone who wants to, and that means women. Yeah, and uh, you know, people with uh, 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 with uh, with 
you know, anyone who wants to, you know, who wants to get involved in football, but also for health reasons, for fit, for fitness, but also just for the glory, just for, just for, just for playing, and also the benefits of working, working as a team. And I think what this has shown as well is that, uh, you know, my, my sort of the main takeaway that I've had from this is that capitalism is killing football. It's not helping it. So it needs to be to be kicked out, but it's working class people who will save uh, 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 save football, and uh, you know just for the joy of playing, you know, and the joy the joy of uh, of uh, being fit and uh, you know and, and playing for playing for your uh, lo- lo- uh, lo- local team. That's that's what it's that's what it's all about. I think football will still exist under under uh, under the so- socialist system. It'll just be a lot more democratic, and also people will be empowered. To control it and to organize it themselves. I think this is a really good and interesting point to finish on. I think you know when you, when you read about the history of football and the history of sports generally, it's all about the fun element of it. And now we're talking about kind of becoming the best and comp- competition and getting those like ridiculous salaries from it. And if you don't make it that way you don't necessarily play and this kind of point of making it again about the community making it again about fun and about leisure and fitness and activity is so crucial even when we talk when we when we talk about kind of like the bigger issues of the structures of clubs and uh, kind of the the amount of money and profit that is being made off the backs of working class people so thank you so much john and suzanne i think this was like genuinely really interesting especially for someone who has been hearing about this so much and can't really couldn't really wrap a head around it and i'm really sorry for our watchers who are outside of europe if you don't get all the references that are specific to europe i know that it's a bit eurocentric this episode but i'm sure that you can relate to it because every single country around the world has a working class culture around sports and this thing happened in europe because of the nature of the uh, of of the football industry here but it can happen anywhere and i think that this is really important for any working class activist to kind of connect like we said to where working class people are and in most places around the world it's going to be around sports so thank you again so much and hopefully see you soon cheers guys bye-bye And now after this really exciting episode, I want to move on to our shout out of the week. And this week, we're going to talk about something that's maybe less happy or exciting. Uh, We're talking about uh, probably everyone who's watching uh, can tell what we're going to be talking about. And it's the situation that's happening right now, the escalation in uh, in Palestine and Israel-Palestine. And I want to shout out, first of all, to every activist on the streets right now who is fighting against the brutal violence uh, perpetuated by the Israeli state. Um, and I particularly want to shout out our, the ISA section in Israel and Palestine, Socialist Struggle Movement, who are uh, really doing amazing work with not much resources and the terribly difficult situation right now obviously both sides of the border uh, are being hit obviously in very different levels um but with lack of sleep barely do barely having any time for themselves they're still out on the streets they're still fighting and they're still doing 
everything that socialist activists should be doing in a place with that level of violence and that level of repression against workers based on nationality, but also generally. And I want to particularly uh, mention one protest that happened this Friday. Um, many of our viewers would have heard about the escalation that started in Sheikh Jarrah, in a uh, neighborhood in East Jerusalem, uh, which is always a contested area. Um, but this escalation started with the attempts by Jewish settlers to evict a few of the families, uh, the Palestinian families in the neighborhood. Uh, and protests just broke out across East Jerusalem and uh, uh, kind of led to this um, kind of really um, inspiring uh, resistance of Palestinians and uh, some uh, Israeli Jewish supporters as well. And obviously this week, a week after the whole uh, escalation started, uh, we, uh, we like the, the Israeli-Palestinian section uh, of ISA participated in a big demonstration that happened in the area, uh, which at the start was um, relatively peaceful to what was expected, but uh, the more Palestinian uh, residents and other supporters joined the protests, um, the uh, police forces and military forces uh, started to storm in and also began to throw stun grenades and use water cannons to disperse the protests. Um, we've had uh, a couple of comrades being uh, lightly injured as well, so uh, we're sending kind of all of the safety wishes and well wishes um, and solidarity from our international and from world to win as well. Uh, so uh, we just, I just want to kind of say a little thing. I'm, I'm, you're you're going to be seeing all of the videos from the protests and uh, how intense this was, but just want to kind of show show the placards as well that were saying uh, uh, housing and welfare, not occupation and discrimination. Um, uh, which we had a big banner uh, there about this. So I uh, really want to send this shout out to everyone in, uh, uh, in Israel-Palestine right now who's fighting against the state violence and particularly to the International Socialist Alternative section in the uh, area. And hopefully you can take care of yourselves and we can fight this horrible occupation and repression by the Israeli state. So thank you uh, and see you next week, same time, same place. This is World to Win. Every Sunday we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast moving global events from a socialist perspective. Subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. When they fight! When they fight! When they fight! Solidarity!